Brad, tell us about the first few days of working on the idea and the screenplay for Frank the Bastard. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the dawn of the story came to me when I went up to Washington County, Maine for the first time. I mean, I grew up in New England, all different parts of New England, but Washington County, Maine was the wild, wild east. It's a really primal kind of landscape. And um, I was up there teaching a, a, a sixth grade class of Passamaquoddy Indians, a filmmaking workshop. I brought a bunch of actors and filmmakers up to work one-on-one -on -one with the kids and they were all making their little movies. And I was surrounded by this crazy world with the Vietnam veterans. You know, like the first time I was driving into the town, I, I uh, was lost, it was foggy at night. It was like Claire and this old arriving and I, pulled in this porch of the house and I see this old woman looking down through the fog and I go, excuse me, I'm looking for Lubeck, Maine. And she goes, ye be from here, ye be from away. Like oh, wow. in that kind wow. of wild, it's, a, it's, it's not even middle English, it's a, it's a variant of old English that is still spoken in par parts of Washington County. It's, it's really something else up there with the Pentecostal churches and the, the, they're, they're, you know, the Cyrus Gast is based on probably Maine, greatest sort of underclass criminal figure who ran all sorts of different scams up there, real estate and, you know, toxic waste disposal. And, you know, so the, a lot of the characters in the story are based on real life figures that I, I, I researched when I was up there. But uh, I think, you know, there was that world that I fell into. At the same time, I think in my internal world, I was going through something of a, of a midlife crisis in terms of trying to come to terms with things that had happened to me when I was young, coming of age during the 60s. Um, uh, you know, I, I come from a somewhat fractured and dysfunctional family full of a lot of, you know, addiction and mental illness, and like divorces and crazy stuff. Um, but I'd always been sort of buoyed by the 60s was a great... Um, coming of age during that mu the music and as a young man coming to New York and the theater and the, um, I, you know, I felt, wow, there, there's, there's hope and salvation in the arts and, I, I, and storytelling in particular was what drew me and I grew up, you know, reading a lot of literature and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, old time, you know, it's, I consider it old time now as, you know, fiction. Uh, I loved Southern Gothic fiction. I loved, uh, you know, Russian novels. I loved, you know, where deep, dense storytelling was very character-driven and very, like, um, something that I had felt had gone out of movie-making. And, you know, when I first decided to become a filmmaker, it was sort of when I, for me to let go of wanting to become a fiction writer, which is what I initially wanted to do when I was really young, and gravitate toward movies was that I, right at that particular point in my life, I, I watched movies like The Godfather and Chinatown, you know, that early 70s stuff was just like mind bending in terms of like, wow, these are the new novelists. These are the new storytellers. They're able to use the screen as, as, a, as a way to, to get that kind of incredible you know, story density that speaks to the modern age. And, and you know, even though they're about old, you know, both those films are about looking back on historical periods, they just and I was very encouraged by, you know, the possibility of being able to do that. And like a lot of my life, it became like a, a rather steady disappointment. I felt at the time that I decided to make Frank the Bastard, that indie filmmaking had sort of, first of all, given up the, you know, in terms of trying to tell the big stories, the epic stories, they, they, they relinquished that to Hollywood. And that indie films were sort of steadily shrinking.
and you know this is sort of the dawn of like mumblecore and 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 stuff where like I, I was just like I just have no I, I don't think that's as a storyteller what I'm good at and what I want to do so I'll take this one shot at telling you know a very indie movie but make it feel like it has an epic scale in terms of you know characters you know that the cast the size of the cast the characters the scope of the time you know past and present are all you know heavily uh, explored and uh, and also being a journey film kind of an epic journey for her Claire descending really when she when you first see her she's at the top of the Manhattan and then she literally plummets into this world and I, I wanted to get those themes and those storytelling tropes all into this small relatively low budget indie film so it was a big challenge. Why? Well, Brad, I understand from your bio that you maybe still are or were a script doctor. Yep. So from the, the mindset of a, of a script doctor, um, how did you start the screenplay for uh, Frank the Bastard? Like, what were your beginning stages? I realize you had a lot of things you wanted to put into a story and, and very rich. Right. Sort of, um, you know, I know you referenced Stephen King in the movie and, and, and this fiction sort of uh, of that place right. and how, how almost untouched by time it seemed but but in terms of the actual structure and how you started it what do you remember the first day you actually said no I'm gonna write this story or how did it begin? well you know like I said I think it started with finding that location and going wow this is an opportunity like in the way that like when John Ford first stumbled onto Monument Valley he was like oh wow I could tell a lot of stories here this place just screams out a certain type of narrative and I felt that way about Washington County um, I also had at the time a, uh, a, a, a relative of mine uh, who was going through a bout of mental illness, schizophrenia and, and bipolar disorder. And um, I, so I was immersed in that. I, I saw a lot of, you know, um, you know, things from my own family history that, that came out in, the, I, I worked on the screenplay a long time. I really developed it like it was a a novel almost. It started with a, a lot more story and I just kept distilling it down, which is why it feels like it has this certain density. As, you know, as a friend of mine says, in the era of wine coolers, you've created a single malt whiskey. It's like pure, <laughs> like, oh my God, it's so intense. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so that distillation process took a long time. I, uh, um, and it was also a, a bit of a stretch for me to write a movie about a woman protagonist. Uh, I was, I think at that point in my life, I was letting go of being a, a young male and I was more in touch with, you know, I was getting ready to start a family and I needed to, and you know, fittingly I had a daughter. That's uh, my one child is a, is, a, is a woman now, or a young woman. Um, I, I, I felt a need to bridge the gap between the very, I, I, I was probably a fairly masculine type of young man and, and kind of obtuse in the way that that implies, uh, as you might know, being a woman. <laughs> um, and so it was really great for me to explore, you know, a character who starts off, you know, not only is she a woman, but she's also very vulnerable and kind of damaged. And the panic I think, attacks. You know, I think that was a part of myself that I needed to bring out, my, my own damaged self, which I think up to that point in my life, I wasn't uh, comfortable with that. So it was nice to find a protagonist who could be that for me. Um, well, and you do reference Stephen King, and I know in his book um, on writing, he talks about writing a script and then leaving it in a drawer for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So for yourself as a, yeah. as a script doctor, a former script doctor, are you able to, quote, leave it in a drawer for a little bit and then come back and sure. see it from 
that critical mindset or are you yeah, too yeah. close to the material? No, no, I was able to do that. Um, you know, there was just enough distance in this story. Um, and I did it a number of times. I, I think I did seven or eight drafts of this screenplay over uh, a four year period. So I, I, I definitely let it sit and let it, you know, just like old whiskey. Like right. it got better, I think. Or it certainly got more intense. It's like, uh, um, Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Switching gears a little bit, where did you go for financing for Frank the Bastard? I mean, and I know it had a different title. It, for, it was well, the original title was actually Frank the Bastard. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, I was talked into uh, uh, changing the title by my producer's rep, who felt like the movie was so intense uh, that it didn't need a super intense title, and also that there was a certain would people understand there's a certain ir irony about the title in that the film is basically Claire's story and that Frank the Bastard is not only a spin on, you know, the gothic romance novels that her friend Isolde is, that's her portrayed, but that, that Frank the Bastard is also somewhat of a, you know, there's a reference there using the word Frank or truth, frankness, truth, truthfulness being a mixture of things, not being a simple, not, they're not being a single path in life and not, and I think um, he just felt that that was way, way too literary and people wouldn't get that and we, we should give, give the film a very you know, accessible title and East of Acadia, you know, Acadia is, a, is a region in Maine. And uh, so I went with that initially and then you know, thank God enough people said to me, are you crazy? That title was great and you gotta keep it. You know, so it came back by popular demand. But, uh, so the financing, you, how did you secure financing for the film? You had the screenplay. You had well, a location. Yeah, you know, and we, we had also Massachusetts film tax credit, which was huge. You know, at that point, it was 35%. I mean, it was really, we, there's just no way we could have shot that film in Maine, you know, which had no films tax credit, which is why we didn't. It's that everything you see in the movie was shot in, on the coast of, of Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we were able to secure financing by, you know, uh, with the film tax credit. I, 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 because I had been working on the film for so long, uh, you know, it was my second film, but my first film was extremely low budget and uh, it actually made me some money, <laughs> miraculously enough. Um, and I, you know, I had, I had established enough credibility with uh, a group of investors, mostly in New York and the, in the banking world. Um, and, uh, you know, it took a long time to raise the money. It was sort of an endless, uh, and very frustrating series of things. But I, I, I didn't make anything else. I mean, that's why it took me so long to make a second film, is that I just, I, I, I put all my eggs in one basket, so to speak, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah. I mean, I learned, first of all, patience, because <laughs> uh, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world when, you know, you're, you've taken on a, a career in an art form that, that does take so long. I mean, and, and so many things are out of your control in terms of, you know, a painter has a canvas and a brush, and a you know a writer has a pen and a paper and uh, or a computer now. Um, but you know, filmmakers are completely uh, at the mercy of of a huge you know, um, which you know I both love and hate. Um, uh, I love working with people, and you know, and I, I have some background in theater, so I was prepared a little bit for filmmaking by working in a lot in theater, which is is a similar as a microcosm of film where you definitely need a, a group and you need a, a, a network of, uh, of, of other creative people too. Um, but, you know, it's a lot easier to make a play than it is to make a movie and uh, in terms of just the logistics of it. So 
that prepared me. But, um, and you know, I, I guess I learned, um, I'd rather do, you know, one thing really true to my ambition and try and do it as well as I can rather than do, like I never, I could have directed a couple of commercials and during that period I was offered other things that felt like would have been fine, you know, career moves and, but I didn't, I stuck with, you know, uh, this thing through hell and high water and which, you know, which is what it took because this film was so hard to make, um, you know, in terms of it's a, for an indie film has a fairly epic scale of, of storytelling and production and so, uh, you know, that, that's also taught me focus, to stay focused over a long period of time. Uh, that was that was hard, but yeah. So well, you had your, your uh, first film, was it The Undeserved? Mm -hmm, yeah. Okay, and that was through IFC. Yeah. And then did it sort of change your mindset where you say, you know, I'm not just a writer, director, I'm not just a filmmaker and, and, and an artist, so to speak, but I'm also a small business owner. Did you ever think in that? Yeah, you have to. I mean, I, I kept trying to keep my eye on, on, and the problem is for filmmakers, it, it is just, you know, it's like being a musician back in, in the 80s, you know, when the bottom dropped out and the whole landscape changed that, that had nothing to do with individual art or, or even business savvy. It's just that the model f fell apart. The business model fell apart, and that's what's happened to indie filmmakers. I mean, when I f <coughs> moved to San Francisco, uh, the, the first week I was there, oh, Steven Soderbergh's going to give a speech at the San Francisco Film Center. I'll go down there. He got up in front of 600 people and said, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. The whole thing is, uh, you know, and, and I remember uh, the, the conviction that he said, you know, it whatever period of time, and, and in some ways he was an interesting figure because I think he ushered in the kind of the great sunrise of independent film production. I remember first seeing uh, uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape and going, wow, like this is a really interesting, you know, thing that's happening in filmmaking where one guy, a very singular vision, a very idios idiosyncratic film could reach this massive audience because it was just so specifically good and character driven and like uh, just, and it, you know, it turned out to be a little bit of a red herring. I think there were, there was, uh, you know, many independent films that came out after that that were great, but that there might be a viable way to make independent films in this country that are going to reach an audience like that. And, and, and for him to get up and say, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, was like shocking to me. And, and, and not shocking really, but it was sort of like, oh no, um, everything that I'm feeling about the independent film world is, is true. <laughs> the daunting difficulty of it all. And the fact that it's, you know, like if you're, you know, you were a musician in the eighties and you'd been making your, you know, you're living off of selling CDs and, and it, you better figure out a new plan immediately. Yeah. And that's what it, you know, so I, the film itself is something of a throwback in terms of the style and, you know, and, and I think that the genre itself, I don't, I don't think big indie, and that's another thing I was like, maybe this is the last chance to make a really big, a true big indie film. I, I, I had the capability of doing it. I thought I had the story, I had the setting, I had the, you know, I'll just take this one last crack and, you know, see, see what happens. So, so in that way, you know, there wasn't, a, a, you know, I don't think it was the savviest business move, but I think that there was unique reasons to try and make this film. Yeah. When you're writing conflict, because I know there's many scenes in the film where there's intense conflict, 
are you writing sort of an outline, a structure for it, and then once you get with the actors, you give them more room to put more fire into those scenes, or are you writing the intensity of the anger in the screenplay? <laughs> well, I think with this screenplay, you know, because it had been, you know, developed, you know, it was, it was I thought, extremely already so intense, and very different working on this screenplay than working on The Undeserved, you know, my first film, which was, you know, very much a Mike Lee inspired, where when I started making that movie, I did not have a screenplay. We, I dropped a bunch of actors into a small town in Vermont, and the town became the blank canvas, and we developed that story through improvisation and actors running around the town figuring out who was who, and it was just a really interesting process. Where, and my background had been as a screenwriter. Again, not, a, not the savviest business decision in the world in terms of like, why was I, I was going against maybe my, my strength and my, my training, but I, I felt something very vital about that for that particular film and doing it that way. And I still think Mike Lee is, you know, in terms of guys who, you know, greatest living indie filmmaker, I, I put him up there against anyone. And, um, but this film, I had the screenplay and I, I didn't have a lot of time, uh, you know, to work with the actors in that way. Uh, thank God I had actors who were very script savvy and didn't really need um, a lot of prompting. You don't have to tell William Sadler where the conflict in a scene is, uh, you know. <laughs> okay. And uh, you know, and people like Chris Sarandon, you know, they're just so such a literary sensibility. Anyway, he was getting. I mean, he was helping me with other characters, not just his own character. Okay. Yeah, that there was an, a lot of nice. Uh, and Rachel Miner, again, same thing. Just a deep insight into the of the nuances of the script. So we didn't, you know, not only we did not have the time, but I, even if I had, I don't know if I would have said much more than I, I had to say during production, yeah. Mm -hmm. How close were you to actually not making this film? Yeah, real close. A couple, there was a couple of, you know, there was a, a point two years before when we were gonna go up and shoot it, and uh, we had some, most of the financing in place, but, um, you know, Massachusetts had a smaller, film tax credit and we just we felt too stretched thin and I wasn't 100% sure that I could pull it off you know so I again what I learned was patience and and just when to make your move um, um, but yeah it was it was a fraught journey for sure it's like like Claire's journey it was like uh, you know it was a twist it was a, the, the quote by Nietzsche uh, twisted is the path to eternity it's like very true, yeah. yeah. Or the one I like too is Coppola. I think anything that you uh, build with love invites chaos. Yeah. Something <laughs> that's a, to that that's effect. A good one. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, tips to other filmmakers on keeping in communication with their financiers, with the people that are. I'm sure most of those people are very on point, very specific, you know, with things. And and I'm sure communication is probably the number one thing. But anything that you've learned along the way, you said you you've dealt with. All these people, most of them were in the banking sector. Yeah, you know, which is like you're constantly you're tr talking to people who don't quite know what you're talking about, <laughs> um, and and you don't know what they're talking about. You know, when they're when they're telling you that, like, uh, you know, there's there's always that. Uh, um, uh, you know, I, again, I would say patience, and 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 also, I think ultimately, what it comes down to when you're talking to investors, they know that it's a crapshoot, and they know that it's ridiculously. Uh, I think, you know, what people respond to, even in the business world, 
more intensely than making money or making something successful is that they, they respond to authenticity. They, they respond to something that they feel is coming from a very deep place in someone. And I, I think that I was always able to convey that, that there was a certain, um, you know, this story was coming out of me in, in, a, in, a, in a profound way. It was a story I, I very much needed to tell. And um, I think at the end of the day, they, they sensed that, or most of them did, because there were people who dropped out who were like, you know, too crazy. Um, this whole adventure seems like, you know, uh, for sure, I, I, you know, you, you run into, you know, for every, some, for every person that you're able to, to convince and to reach, there's someone who's like, they, they, it, it's too daunting. It's, it, you know, it's the, the, the gap between the business world and the artistic world. The artistic world is often, you know, yeah, it's not just, it's chaos and it's, it's turmoil and it's, it's in interiority. It's, it's, it's about, you know, what was, things that are going on, on the inside, which are often very hard to articulate um, and, and also to get people to understand to relate, you know, it's, uh, I, I think Frank the Bastard is like, it's, it's unique because it's, it's such a leap into this other world. Uh, and uh, to take a, a Wall Street banker on that journey is, is like, you know, a challenge. <laughs> Would you say you approach many things in life, and forgive me if I'm getting too personal, but because you mentioned that, you know, things had been sort of a, a winding journey and you've mm -hmm. dealt with certain things in your life, that maybe that's just, just a product you've become a product of that sure. and it's very important to you sure. to make sure that you have the right reasons driving you and not just yeah yeah sure i, I you know I, i've always asked myself that question is 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 something that's just is it specific to me is a certain i mean i i i once referred to my brother and i as as children of chaos that 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 it was the, the children of the the flower children begat the children of chaos you know in terms of we came out of that you know, exciting, tumultuous, you know, the, I, you know, I, all my distant memories of the 1960s are, are just like, I just could not believe that, you know, seeing Jimi Hendrix, you know, perform when I was nine years old, it was like crazy. It was like, I was like, these are gods. These, this is not just personal gods, rock stars. This is a new type of energy coming into the universe. And I was like, you know, I, don't know how many people can relate to that. I mean, I, I, I can, uh, or the disappointment of having that not really come to much, that very soon after the 60s, Richard Nixon would get elected and then Ronald Reagan would come along. And then like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're dreaming, be prepared to be crushed. Now that, that may be part of my, my personal experience, but I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that's a very human thing for to, to, to dream and to hope for wholeness and, and, you know, for a world, a fallen world to be restored is, I think, a very, you know, it's biblical, it's, you know, it's, it's in a lot of religions. And uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I, I can never really fully answer that question, but I try all the time. Sure. Well, everyone can probably think of all the negatives of coming from chaos, but what are the positives of coming from it? Because I'm sure there's many things that we wouldn't think of. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, is that I, I find that I can go anywhere in the world. I mean, I'm making a film now down in the city of San Pedro Sula, Honduras, which is currently probably the most chaotic spot on the planet. It's the murder capital of the world. It's like a place in total freefall. And I can go into a city like that and feel pretty 
comfortable and, and, and dialed in and reaching out to a, a population. It's, it's a film about the only girls' orphanage in Honduras, and it's about them trying to learn how to write poetry. And it was like, I just fell right in. I was like instantly connected to, and I, you know, I think the way that the world is going right now, I think be, being something of a chaos manager is a good, is a good life skill. Um, I think the thing that I try and not do is succumb to a certain kind of uh, emotional, that, that there was certain things that are particular to my sadness or my pain or my trauma that's really specifically mine. And that to, to somehow be able to have that, to, and to do, feel, you know, always to make that a part of, not try and hide that or bury that, because I think that's a very common tendency. Um, but to, to balance it with what's going on out in the world is, it's, it's an ongoing struggle. <laughs> but I, I think it is a skill. I think it is something that I, I'm, I'm pretty good at and hopefully we'll find ways to use it because it's, it's, you know, it's something of a, uh, you know, it's not like I'm a, uh, a, a great entertainer or, a, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to certain pockets of the world that are, I, I, most people might shy away from. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's always, you know, uh, a, a great thing, but it, it has its uses. I'll say that, yeah.